You see, God didn't send the storm to sink Jonah, but to save him. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Jonah, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. You've heard the phrase, it's a God thing. It's a phrase that's used quite a bit uh, currently in Western uh, Christianity. And the people who say it's a God thing mean well. They actually mean well. They're trying to communicate gratitude and recognition for a situation that can only be explained as possible because of God. It's a God thing. Uh, It might be what they consider to be a miracle or maybe it's a providential blessing. Maybe it's just something that turned out good in the end. It's a God thing. However, I've also seen people use that phrase for things that aren't really miraculous. It just was a nice turn of events, such as a stress-free day, hashtag, it's a God thing. Or they pulled into the Target parking lot, and I found that parking spot up close. It's a God thing. Or, hey, you know what? I got my perfect cup at Starbucks. It's a God thing. However, what about when things like 2020 hit? When we have things like COVID, uh, race riots, political unrest, death, despair, disease, confusion, and what seems like our entire civilization undergoing a massive change of pace and way of life. How many of us would still say that everything that has happened in 2020, oh, hey, it's a God thing. The reality is though, when we approach the scriptures, everything that we have experienced And everything we will experience, if it gets worse, is still under the sovereign rule of a gracious and good and just God who has promised to work all things according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace for our good and for his pleasure. Amen? Even the difficulty, you got to amen that, even the difficulty, amen, even judgment, wrath, and correction. And yes, even the storm. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23 says this. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. Did you catch that? The storm of the Lord. We left off last week in chapter one of our Jonah study uh, in verse three, chapter one, where Jonah is seemingly escaping the call and the command of God. Remember, Jonah, as we studied last week, was a prophet of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam. And we learned last week that Jonah had an idol in his life. For Jonah, it was nationalistic zeal. In other words, he put his people group over his identity as a follower of God. And because of prejudice against the Assyrians, Jonah ran from his calling. And we'll see more of that in chapter four. God had called Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. And he certainly arises, but instead he arises to flee the opposite direction and descends down to Joppa. Now, someone pointed out to me last week, Joppa, centuries later in Acts chapter 10, is where Peter would visit and minister the gospel to the Gentile centurion on the coastline, or you could say on the shoreline. Joppa eventually represents this, in scripture, this jumping off point for the Gentiles to hear the gospel and to receive the mercy of God. But for Jonah here, Joppa is not a place of mission, it's a place of escape. It's a place of selfishness and it's a place of sinful disobedience where the messenger doesn't actually want the Gentiles to experience the grace of God. So Jonah at the coast there uh, boards a ship bound for Tarshish, which is modern day Spain, the opposite direction of Nineveh. He pays the fare, he boards the ship, And then he descends under the deck to traverse this treacherous voyage across the Mediterranean. 
Now, if we left off in chapter 1, verse 3, which we did last week and just never covered the rest of Jonah, we might be tempted to believe that Jonah's free will has won the day. But then we come to verse 4. And what we're going to see today is that what appears to be calamity is actually a sovereign God working his heavenly will out on earth. Any, any application there in our own lives? What we're going to see today are the vessels of God's reproof. That's the title of the sermon today, the vessels of God's reproof. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot down four different points that we're going to study today. And each one of these are the, the means of God's correction in Jonah's life. Number one, in verses four through six, we're going to see the Lord's storm. You might see a recurring theme here. The Lord's storm, verses seven through 10, the Lord's lot. Verses 11 through 16, the Lord's mariners. And then verses, uh, verse 17 is the Lord's fish. And I use that word on purpose. Now, let's look at the first section, the Lord's storm, and look again with me at verse four. It says, but in contradiction to Jonah's fleeing, God is working that for good. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, certainly I don't need to paint the picture for us as Floridians. A mighty tempest is 3 p.m. in the summer. We understand what a mighty tempest in a great wind looks like. But I wanna draw your attention to the word ship, okay? During the days of Jonah uh, and today, there was regular trade across the Mediterranean. And the ship that Jonah most likely would have been on was a ship of Tarshish. And in the Old Testament, almost always, these are a picture of great distance and great commerce. So essentially, if we wanted to see it today, it's essentially a Phoenician ship, about 65 to 100 feet long, maybe about 20 feet wide. Uh, these were not built for fighting, but they could fight. They were mostly built for trade. And other than the captain or the owner, uh, the, other than him, there's really only about 20 men on board this ship. So it's not the biggest ship in the world. And underneath the ship, there would have been a small amount of cargo space where um, they would have stored a lot of the shipment that they were bringing back and forth. And that is where we find out that Jonah goes down to take, well, he's taking a little nap. Remember, Jonah's not a crew member. Uh, he was a passenger. So he's paying extra to ride on the ship that is being used commercially. He's on board a ship heading, think about this, the opposite direction of where God has called him to go. He's on board with 20 or so unbelieving mariners who could navigate the Mediterranean in their sleep. And yet he decides he wants to get some sleep. And these men are potentially worshiping every false God except the one true God of Israel. You could say it this way, Jonah has no business being on board this ship. One person, Sinclair Ferguson, said this in his fantastic commentary, Man Overboard. He says, before his lifestyle had been held together by the principle of obedience to God's word and his character had been transformed by constant recourse to God's presence, God's word, God's presence. Now, with these two stable elements gone, Jonah appears as a man who is spiritually all at sea. He had lost his moorings and drifted out into the dangerous waters of backsliding from God. Now, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. If you've got a pen or a highlighter, note or mark the phrase that God hurled a great wind. Okay, God is the one who sent the storm. And the very accurate ESV, that's why we love studying it and reading it, um, gets this very right. It is the fact that the Lord hurled. I want to draw your attention to that word because we're going to see it come back church, the same God who calms the storm. We love singing about how God calms the storm in modern worship, but God also is the same God who conjures up the storm. Uh, now, please don't misunderstand. God was not sending the storm to destroy Jonah because he had disobeyed. Like, okay, it's time for revenge. I'm going to get you, Jonah, because you disobeyed me. This is not to destroy Jonah. It's to direct him. And there's a series of events that Dean just read that we're going to look at that take place that are going to draw out the character of Jonah on this vessel. Look at verse 5 as this begins to unfold, or you could say unravel. Verse 5 says, Then the mariners, who were never afraid, were afraid. And each cried out to his God. Little g, right, his idol. And they hurled the cargo, same, there's that same word again. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay, now have your attention. Follow with me. The mariners are experienced, and you could say they're salty, all right? Literally, these are salty men. And yet, even they, experienced mariners, are afraid. They begin, notice with me, to cry out to their false gods. And then when they see that's maybe not working, they then try to throw the cargo overboard. And and the captain may have begun accounting for everyone. Okay, you're here, you're here. Who else is here? We're missing someone. Maybe he was going down under the deck to take some of the extra cargo to lighten. And then he sees Jonah asleep under uh, the deck. Uh, But notice that he calls Jonah in verse 6 to arise. Did you catch that word? Arise, call out to your God. There's a little bit of irony here because this is the exact same word that was used in verse 2 of chapter 1 when God had said that exact word to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. It's almost as if the irony is that the captain is saying, hey, Jonah, we know you're running from your God. He told you to arise and go, and you've run and laid down to escape. Now you need to wake up, arise, and you need to call out to him. There's a phrase we use in our culture, wake-up call. Talk about a wake-up call for Jonah. There comes a day when, like Jonah, the person running from God must awake from slumber and stand quorum Deo, stand before the face of God. And one commentator said, you can't sleep forever. So if you're here today and you've been running from God, uh, you can't sleep forever. You can't uh, idly slumber thinking, well, I'll get away with this and God will never call me to account. Uh, We can fall asleep as believers. And I love what Spurgeon said here on the screen. He said, Jonah was asleep amid all the confusion and noise. And oh, Christian man, for you to be indifferent to all that is going on in such a world as this, for you to be negligent of God's work in such a time as this is just as strange. The devil alone is making noise enough to wake all the Jonas if they only want to awake. And, and how applicable is this for our world today? He says, all around us there is tumult and storm, yet some professing Christians are able, like Jonah, to go to sleep in the sides of the ship. Now track with me, Jonah, we think, is in Right? You want to use these different prepositional words. So here's a preposition, in. Jonah's in the inner part of the ship. But you know what? He's in a lot more than that. Jonah is in isolation. He's all by himself. Jonah is in a comfortable place. He's relaxing. Jonah is in REM. He's asleep. Jonah is in trouble. He's about to be exposed into sin. So soon after this, Jonah will be in front of other people confessing his sin. He'll be in deep water by the conclusion of this sermon, dealing with the consequences of his sin. And then eventually he'll be in the belly of the fish in the vessel of God's reproof. And so some of us think like, well, we're just in a little bit of a moment. No, we're running from God. We're in sin. So I want us to look at this second section, the Lord's lot. Now notice how this Uh, Develops. It says in verse 7, The mariners said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, notice with me, and we'll revisit this at the end, notice with me how these men were seeking to save themselves. Just follow with me for a minute. First, they respond in fear. So uh, they know the seas, and they know this storm is different. This is an intense one. This is a dangerous one. This is threatening to break our ship apart. And so in the midst of their plight, they begin to get afraid. And and so when we, in in like manner, when we experience plight in the world, what's our first thought? Our first thought is, I got to solve the problem. We get afraid. I got to solve it. What do I got to do to fix the problem? And so what they do is they begin to call upon their God. And next they say, well, let's throw the excess cargo overboard. That's what we've been trained to do in these situations. We know the routine, we're experienced, so when there's a bad storm, we gotta lighten the load, we gotta ride a little bit higher on the waves, and so we do what we normally do in these situations. Eventually, we're just gonna row harder. We're gonna row faster and harder, and we're gonna outrow the wind and the waves, and eventually, we'll find ourselves saving ourselves. Well, then they turn to superstition. 
which of course was rampant among pagans and specifically sailors. So if you were out at sea and something bad happened at sea, most sailors had some sort of superstitious belief. They would say, hey, someone did something wrong on board here. And so we need to turn to luck to find out who it is. So let's roll the dice. Now, ironically, they happen to be right in this case. Their, their superstition happened to be more like discernment. But they cast lots, and it shouldn't surprise us that this is the Lord's lot, and the, the lot fell on Jonah. Now, someone might read this and go, well, that's blind luck. But the Bible paints a different picture. In fact, Proverbs 16.33 tells us this on the screen. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, just real quick, I want to camp out on this because some of us don't know what that means. What does it mean to cast lots? Uh, it's similar to rolling dice. Some of us do that. Or flipping a coin. So similar kind of idea. But I find it fascinating that ancient Israelites would often, it's kind of gross, but they would take sheep knuckles. So they would take a sheep that died and they would roast the knuckles and they would use those uh, to be the lots that they were casting. And essentially, every one of those lots would be a different person. So you got your sheep knuckle and you would put all of those into a bag and then you would kind of tip it over. And in some ways, the first sheep knuckle, the first lot that came out was the person who got picked. That was the person who was selected. Now we, hopefully today, would never make a major decision as a Christian by rolling a pair of dice and saying, okay, honey, if it's odd, then we're gonna buy the house. If it's even, we won't buy the house, right? That's just silly. Can you guys imagine flipping a coin with your husband and saying, okay, sweetie, if it's heads, then we're gonna have another baby. If it's tails, then we should adopt. And, and someone says that's how we ended up with six kids here uh, this morning. So um, we started hiding the loose change in the house. No more flipping coins. Now, obviously, we see the, the, the folly in these flippant ways to discern God's will. The idea in Scripture is not that we should turn to superstition, we should turn to casting lots, but that even in these seemingly unimportant things, God is still at work. And so even in Jonah's life, God is graciously, sovereignly allowing the lot to land upon the prophet. So now his guilt has been exposed before God, and now his guilt is exposed before these unbelieving mariners. Now, at this point in the storm, the wind would have been howling, the water is spraying everyone on deck, and the men were probably yelling at the top of their voices. Look at verse 8. It says, they said to him, we could have just as well say they yelled at him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So now he's exposed. Jonah's now being interrogated so that he'll make a full confession with his own lips. God was allowing this to happen in Jonah's life for confession's sake. So notice what he says in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. You want to circle that. Um, the reason he says that, he doesn't say an Israelite, is because the name Hebrew was used among foreigners to Israel. So uh, they would say Hebrew. So he's just letting them know who he is based on their own lingo. But notice what else he says here. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. You guys catch the, the irony here? Oh, hey, I, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Jehovah. I fear Yahweh. Um, may, Jonah, maybe in profession you fear him, but not in practice. You can say all day long, I fear the Lord, but let's see if your actions are confirming or denying that profession. So notice what else he says. He actually gives a great statement of, of belief here. He says, I am a Hebrew and fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, verse 10 says, then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. So earlier in the voyage, he would have been explaining to them, yeah, I need to get as far away from Joppa as possible. I'll pay extra. Get me to uh, Tarshish. The reason I'm leaving, and then he would have explained it. And so this statement that he makes in verse 9 is a clear-cut statement of faith. I fear God, the God of heaven, the God of earth, and the God of the sea. Now that's significant because one of the mariners may have been crying out to whom he considered to be the God of the sea. Maybe another was crying out to the God of the wind and the air. 
Maybe one was crying out to the God of land and just saying, oh, I beseech thee for an island for us to, to uh, make shoals or shore upon. But see, Jonah corrects all of these false religious notions. He says, yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm the prophet of the one true God who made all of that. He made heaven, he made the earth, he made the sea, he made the air, the land. I'm serving that God. And you know what? I'm also running from said deity. <laughs> and so <laughs> their reaction is, what have you done? Verse 10, what is it that you have done? Now track with me. This is less of a question, right? And this is more of a statement. What have you done? Now, let's see what their reaction is. Again, note with me the grace with which God is dealing with Jonah. Look at verse 11 in this third section, the Lord's mariners. It says, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, at this point, we can make a little commentary here. Jonah, you are guilty. You're guilty. You're found out. What should we do to fix this situation? You see, it's getting worse and worse now. Now we've realized this man on board has offended his God. And we're now kind of the, you know, we're, we're the party alongside for the wrath. And so what do we do to fix this situation? It's getting worse and worse. And just think for a minute, church, how Jonah's sin affected not only Jonah, not only the Ninevites who weren't hearing the good news or the, good, the news to repent, uh, it was affecting Israel because the prophet had gone AWOL. But not only that, it's affecting these men on board. It's not only affecting the men on board, it's affecting maybe other ships in the Mediterranean. This wasn't a localized tiny little storm. This is a storm that was affecting a larger body of water. And so just imagine the other mariners on other ships experiencing this situation because of Jonah's disobedience. Church, our sin never only impacts us. It has a profound effect on the people around us, even to a degree we never could have surmised. Now, what happens next, I think I have always misunderstood. I think I've always misunderstood this next section of the story. I had, prior to this week, always believed that Jonah was being thoughtful to the mariners. He saw the wind, he saw the waves, and he's kind of having compassion on the mariners and, and says, here's what you guys do, just toss me overboard, and that'll give you guys relief. But I think I've been completely wrong, and I want to make a case for that. Let's read it and see why. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up, and here's the word again, hurl me. Hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. In other words, you've been throwing overboard the wrong cargo. There's one piece of cargo you need to throw overboard, and that's this guy. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, they didn't do that. The men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. So just, just catch this. They're, they've been calling out to false gods. He presents the one true God. Now they turn and begin to cry out to God. And so they say, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Now track with me. Jonah, I don't believe, was being thoughtful of these men by asking them or commanding them or, or instructing them to throw him overboard to spare them. No, being thrown overboard in the middle of a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean is suicide. And so this is not compassion. This is the ultimate act of selfishness. Some commentators say, see, here's where Jonah had a change of heart and Jonah repented and he realized what he did wrong. I don't think so. I believe this is the ultimate act of selfishness. Jonah would rather die than obey God in preaching to Nineveh. So just, just follow me. What he should have said is, guys, I'm running from the God I just declared to you. So here's what we need to do. Turn the ship around. Let's turn it around and let's make for Joppa. I'm going to go fulfill what God has called me to do. I'm going to be obedient to him. Turn the ship around. But he doesn't do this. He says, just throw me overboard. I know it's my fault. See, Jonah is trying to complete his rebellion and seal his fate by ending his own life. And in so doing, he's making these innocent men guilty of his death. So verse 15 says, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. 
and the sea ceased from its raging. Do you guys follow that all of this has been a God thing? This is all a work of God in the life of Jonah and in the life of these mariners and ultimately in the life of the Ninevites. Now, let's look at how God's glory extends to these mariners. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, (laughs) and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. How did they know how to do that? Did they see Israel enough by making those pit stops in Joppa? Did they know enough about Israel? Did Jonah share with them? Here's how you make a sacrifice. Here's how you make a vow to the Lord. But note with me the irony and the grace. God is saying, hey, Jonah, I want you to preach to Gentiles. And in his refusal and in his rebellion, God uses Jonah to preach to Gentiles. (laughs) And those Gentiles end up making vows, they make sacrifices, and they end up having an exceedingly great reverence for the God of Israel. Isn't that ironic? It's like the wayward Jonah is inadvertently the instrument that God uses to extend his glory to the nations. Now, not only is the storm, the the ship, the lot, the mariners, not only are these the vessels of God's reproof, but there's one more, and that's the fish. God in his wrath could have allowed Jonah to drown, but we know God will accomplish his purposes. So let's look at this last idea of the Lord's fish. Look with me at verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed, what a great phrase, the Lord appointed, God was in control, it's a God thing, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I drew your attention to that phrase, the Lord appointed. Great phrase. Other translations say the Lord provided, the Lord prepared, the Lord arranged, or the Lord sent. You know, that fish is a better missionary than Jonah was, right? That fish was the one who obeyed God and was commissioned by God, sent, ordained, prepared, greater than Jonah was. Uh, And this fish did not swallow up Jonah because God in his wrath said, that's it, Jonah, I'm done with you. If God in his wrath wanted to end Jonah's life, there was no fish, he would have drowned. There's no way he would have lived through that storm. It was a fish commissioned by God to carry Jonah back east toward Nineveh. Now, if you follow this chapter, there's a lot of, I said missionary, there's a lot of of sending in this chapter. You missed it. Look back with me. Look back at at verse 4, and I'm not going to give you every verse, but look at this for a minute. The Lord sent a great wind. The Lord sent a great fish. Eventually, the Lord will send Jonah back to Nineveh. The Lord will send a vine to give Jonah shade. The Lord will send a worm that will eat that vine. The Lord will then send a strong east wind and he'll also send mercy, not wrath on Nineveh. So all of these things are being used by God to sovereignly work, not for Jonah's destruction, but for his discipline. The vessels of God's reproof are the means of his grace, allowing his beloved children to experience what seems to be calamity in order that he might receive all the glory. You see, that means that the good, the bad, the difficult, the confusing, all of it is a God thing. Now, we see in verse 17 the the word fish, a great fish, and um, we know that classification didn't happen as Jonah was written, and so a lot of people say this is a whale. A lot of people would say this is a fish. What I want to do, because our kids are in the service today, parents and kids, what I want you to do is for next Sunday, what I'd love for you guys to do is to, um, starting today, draw a picture of what you guys think Jonah's fish look like, Jonah's whale or his fish. I'd love for you guys to participate in that. And what you can do is, um, parents, you can um, email us at the church or you can um, let us know on Facebook. And what we'll do is next week, we'll try to highlight some of the um, pictures on the screen of the different um, artist renditions, right? Shoreline, young shoreline artist renditions of the great fish, all right? Parents, you're excluded from this. I don't want any parents going like, hey, I, I want to get kind of discovered here. So I'm going I'm to like chime in. My, this was my son, but it was actually me. Uh, please don't do that. Um, but we want you kids, anyone who's, who's a child in here, um, Let's get your picture of what the fish look like, all right? So um, make sure we get it before next Sunday so we have time to put it up on the screen, okay? So participate in that. And we'll learn next week much more about scientifically what happened here. Um, And God was still completely at work and gets the glory. So 
Incredible story. Um, and if the story again ended here, it would have ended with Jonah dying and drowning. But see, God in his mercy sends the fish. And next week we'll see the prayer from the fish. Uh, talk about an, an interesting prayer closet. Next week we'll look at that. So I want to make sure we apply this passage of scripture um, rightly. So uh, if you're taking note, I want to jot down uh, a handful, about four, and I want to spend some time on this, four ways to apply um, this idea of this section of scripture. So the first thing I want you to write down is that number one, God's wrath against sin is swift, sure, and sovereign. God had called Jonah to Nineveh, but then we read in verse three, three, but Jonah. Do those two words not represent our human depravity? But Jonah, God had commanded, God had given his word, uh, he had commanded him how to obey, what to do, and Jonah disobeys. Jonah seemingly abandons his post. Now you hear that and you go, wow, okay, well that must be outside of God's sovereignty. So is, that, is his desertion the end of the story? Like God communicates his will through his word and man then has the power to resist and reject it. So Jonah is the one who gets the final word. Jonah can outpace God? Of course not. You see, right after, but Jonah in verse three, we read verse four, but God, right? but the Lord. And so the storm, the ship, the fish, the lot, these are all vessels of God's reproof in Jonah's life. We must learn to praise God and thank him, which seems completely foreign. We complain, but how often do we thank him for the vessels of correction that he uses to discipline those whom he loves? How often do we thank him for those things? Growing up, uh, one of my cousins always got caught. He was always doing something wrong. He always got caught, like hilariously. I remember one time I walked uh, in to visit him. He was working at a restaurant, and one of the girls walked by um, that worked with him, and I said, hey, man, how have you been lately? I just wanted to check in with you. And he's like, man, I've been, I've been doing great in the Lord. Like, I am just so strong in Christ, and, like, nothing's going to knock me down. And right then, one of, the, um, one of the hostesses walked by, and she's like, man, you were so drunk last night, and walked right past him. And I just looked at him. Uh, and he goes, man, are you kidding me? And he just put his head down. And he's like, I just got caught again. And I was like, yes. And so he, he said to me, I don't understand this. If God loves me, why am I always getting caught? And I said, bro, because these moments of humiliation, right? These moments of exposure, these moments of discipline keep happening immediately. This is God saying, I love you, and I don't want you drifting very far from me, but in my judgment, I'm swiftly course-correcting you. And God did a work in his life. You see, God didn't send the storm to sink Jonah, but to save him. God wasn't seeking destruction. He was seeking discipline. God will put a sure end to sin, and indeed, he already has through his shed blood of his dear son. God will vanquish his enemies, and he will execute divine justice and accomplish what brings himself both ultimate glory and ultimate satisfaction, and no one or no thing in all of creation can thwart his divine counsel. He's absolutely sovereign, and God cannot be mocked. We reap what we sow. And knowing that, knowing that, that God is in control and that God is in charge, that can either bring you great anxiety if you're running from it, or it can bring great relief. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Imagine that, two Spurgeon quotes in one sermon. Uh, he says, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. So in light of God's sovereignty in your waywardness, does that bring anxiety or does that produce relief in your heart? So we need to know God's wrath against sin. It's swift, it's sure, and it's sovereign. He will and he must and he shall have the glory. Number two, we can have the right theology even while having a rebellious heart. Now track with me. Jonah wasn't an unbelieving sailor who was ignorant of God's works and God's ways. He says, no, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah was incredibly accurate in what he depicts about God. So Jonah understood what he believed, right? Jonah wasn't a false prophet. That moniker gets thrown around a lot today, and, and rightly so for some. 
But Jonah's not a false prophet. Jonah's theology wasn't off, but his heart was. You see, he had the right information about God, even simultaneously having a rebellious heart of unbelief in defiance against God. So this morning, that may be you. You may know all the correct facts about God, and you could even school us in your sound theology. However, the Bible reminds us that knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. That man looks at the outward appearance and may be impressed by what you know, but the Lord looks on the heart. So many of us can honor him with our lips, like Jonah, and yet our heart is far from him. Like, how can Jonah say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, but then I'm simultaneously fleeing from God's presence? Uh, Don't miss this. Jonah wants his cake, and he wants to eat it too. He wants others to know, I fear the Lord. Just letting you know, pagan, unbelieving sailors know, you'll die with an eternity separated from God, but I know the Lord, and I fear the Lord. But deep down, I really don't have any reverence for him. Maybe that's how some of us live our lives, with regard for God, but not reverence. We know in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That isn't necessarily a terror, though that might be there, but it's a reverence, it's an awe, it's a submission. It's not just a a flippant regard, like, yeah, I regard the things, I'm handling the things of God with a, a little bit of regard, he's good. The man upstairs, the guy upstairs knows what I'm dealing with. Yeah, I gotta call out on the good guy upstairs. No, no, that's regard, we need reverence. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just our mind. So may God work in our hearts if that's us. And it is us from time to time. We have the right theology with a rebellious heart. Number three, uh, jot this down. Number three, storms, at least here in this situation, can reveal our idols and crush them so we turn in reverence toward God. Notice what is happening in the hearts and lives of this salty crew on the Phoenician ship. Just track with me, they're living their lives, they're pursuing their interests, they're, they're doing their thing, they're making money, and suddenly calamity strikes. They begin to fear, and then they call out to their false gods, they work hard to produce salvation in their own effort, and yet none of those things save, right? The, the deaf and the dumb idols have no answer, the hard work is futile against the maelstrom. The, the self-righteous religious effort creates a lot of white water and foam, but it's powerless to save. One person said this, God wants to do for us what he did for the lot-throwing idol worshipers on the ship with Jonah. He wants to break down our idols and teach us to rely solely on the grace of God in Christ. I love that. See, like the sailors, we too turn to a plethora of false gods when storms strike. And we call upon those gods that normally bring us peace and serenity and comfort. And when problems arise, these idols kind of surface to um, the top. John Calvin said the human heart's like a perpetual idol factory. Now, I don't know about you, am I the only one who saw this in my own life this year. You're like, no, pastor, we all saw it in your life this year. Okay, that's great, that's great. When the storm of COVID, the lockdowns, the quarantine, stay-at-home orders, the curfew, the isolation, the, the social distancing, I hate that term. Right? It should be called physical distancing, but okay, the social distancing. When all of that hit us this year, Were there not idols in all of our hearts that kind of rose up and commanded attention, commanded uh, dominion, and then got devastated? Like, for us, it may have been comfort. Maybe it was ease. Maybe it was selfishness or wealth or certainty or independence or safety. And all of these have proven to be worthless idols that cannot and will not save. So... For us as a Christian, what idols in our own life do we call out to in the midst of the storm only to find out these idols can't answer and they can't save? I was uh, researching this on Google this week and I was like, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to look this up. Like what idols, what gods were these men calling out to? And so um, I saw in the, th- in the search thread that someone had asked the question, what was the first idol? And I was like, yeah, what what was the first idol? Like, was it Baal? Was it Asherah? Was it Moloch? Like, what was the first idol? Um, Who was the first idol? And so I clicked on the answer to the question, and Kelly Clarkson popped up. (laughs) Who was the first idol? Kelly Clarkson, the first idol. 
you used to say, well, we don't have idols in our lives. Pastor, I don't have any idols in my life. Yeah, we have, we have a heart that is a perpetual idol factory. And we are told to, um, like we said last week, when we look at the book of Jonah, we realize a lot of scripture, you know, we kind of put ourselves in the story to, to our detriment. This is one of those stories where it's intended for us to see ourselves reflected back and go, wow, I am in need of saving. I am, I am desperate. I am depraved. I, apart from God, can do nothing. And these idols creep up into my lives and they're crushed by the storms. They're crushed by God. And then what that does is that should call us to turn in reverence toward Jehovah, towards Yahweh, towards God as the only source of hope, life, and salvation. We need God's mercy in the midst of wrath. And that brings us to our fourth and final application point I want you to jot down. Number four, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. For my Christian friends who believe that pretty much everything depends upon our own obedience to God and very little on God's elective purposes in sovereignty, the book of Jonah should have ended in verse 16 with the death of Jonah. You disobeyed, you're done. You're cut out, you lost your salvation. You disobeyed me, you forfeited your right to be my child. You forsake me, I'm forsaking you. And Jonah would have drowned. But see, God's purposes will always prevail. If our salvation is based on solely our merit and then keeping our salvation is fully dependent upon us and our ability to hang on to God, then each and every one of us will lose our salvation. But see, God's purposes will never be thwarted. God will keep us to the end. Even in his wrath against our sin, God will remember mercy. Jonah thinks, I can run from God and I can resist the will of God. But the captain reminds them, Jonah, you can't sleep forever. You gotta arise and call upon your God. Even as we seek to run from the, the face of God, we will stand quorum Deo, before the face of God. Habakkuk got this, and he prayed this in Habakkuk 3.2. He said, oh Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, in the, the correction that God gave Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, through the oppression of the Assyrians, through the oppression of Babylon, in the midst of that, God, would you remember mercy? I know what you're capable of doing, God. And in the midst of that correction, please don't forget to be merciful to your people who are called by your name. See, though Jonah deserved the sailor's wrath, he received their merciful dispatch overboard. Though Jonah deserved God's wrath far greater than man's, God remembered mercy, God appointed the fish. Though you and I deserve judgment, yet God has sent his son to live a perfect life and to take our place and to bear the full wrath of God so that the guilty one may go free. See, because of the cross, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Like, like, do we not see the gospel in this story that we just read? Maybe you didn't. Let's unpack this for a minute. Jesus, the true and better Jonah, who said in Matthew 12 that he was greater than Jonah, was also asleep in a boat in a storm, yet he wasn't running from the Father's will, but he was pursuing all that the Father had for his life. In the midst of this storm, Jonah reveals Yahweh to the mariners on the ship. And these men at sea were not in more danger than the Ninevites. They were all in a great need of saving because they were unbelievers who did not know or worship the true and living God. Everyone in the boat, from those praying to their gods, to those who were the least important to the most important to the captain, everyone in the boat needed to be saved. But notice, their salvation came when the prophet among them was put to death. Just as they cried out for God not to punish them with his blood on their hands, another prophet from Galilee came to preach repentance and he prayed for forgiveness for those who didn't know what they were doing as they put him to death. The men on board this ship recognized in verse 14 that the death that brought salvation to all in the boat was done as it pleased the Father. And as our dear Lord was crushed, we know from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to accomplish his purposes through the death, burial, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that we are like the men on the boat. We face a plight that we can't outrow. We do our best. 
We turn to religion, we turn to common sense, we turn to our experience, we turn to our efforts, we turn to our good works, and we think that we can outrow the plight in this world. No superstition, no sweat will save. We all must repent and trust Christ for eternal salvation. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've never turned from your sin and turned to Christ and said, I repent of my sin, I turn from it, I want to receive the mercies of God through the finished work of Christ on my behalf. I want to know Jesus and I want to be saved. Well, we want to give you that opportunity today to respond in faith to the gospel. For all of us today who are in Christ, who are his children, I want to close and point our attention to verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. Look at what the sailors, I'm going to say that they said this to Jonah because it's more of a statement than a question. Notice what they say in verse 10. They say, why have you done this? And there's a quote from Hugh Martin, uh, for each and every one of us as a Christian, because all of us in some way can become the backslider, the wayward, the runner. And so as we close with this quote this morning and then Um, reflect on this in a time of gratitude and worship. I want the Holy Spirit to search us, each and every one of our hearts, as we close with this statement, as we close with this series of questions. And what I want you to do is not think of who needs to see this and, and, and tag them on Facebook or elbow your husband at this point. This is for each of us. This is a quote for me. This is a quote for you. If you're watching online, this is a quote for all of us. And so with kind of a Uh, a Holy Spirit searching, we'll close with this quote. Here it is on the screen. Why have you done this? When your heart that once found its sweet and chosen pleasure in the scriptures, in meditation and prayer, now follows so keenly the things that perish in the using and allows itself to be molded by the fashion of the world that passeth away, why is this? When you have forsaken your first love, abated the zeal and contracted the extent of your first works. Why is this? Let it not continue to regard the question as a mere vague rebuke, as if what you have done is defensible. Press the question. Accept it as a question under which you may not only well be expected to wince and feel sore, but as a question to be deliberately faced and kept in view, till through restoration and confirmed revival and zealous return to first love and first works are again secured. Why have you done this? Produce your strong reasons. Has God been a wilderness to you? Have you found a better friend? Have you found a worthier portion? Have you found a sweeter employment than meditation in his word and calling on his name? Have you found him unfaithful to his promise? Have you discovered that he discourages his people? Will you say that the more you've known him, the less you've thought of him? It looks like it, O backslider. It looks like it. If you can remember days when you loved him more and served him better than now. Why have you done this? Has the world been better to you than God? Has it been more full, more steadfast, more satisfying, more true than God? What a question for us to consider today. For the backslider, for the runner, the Lord is pleading with us this morning to repent, to turn from our sin. For the person who is in the boat, turning to the false God, never repenting, never turning to Christ, your day will come where you'll stand before a holy God completely exposed, revealed in your sin. And today is the day that you in this reality and this reflection of where you stand, exposed, dead in your sins, this is the day you can be made alive. And so what I want us to do is bow our heads together as a church. And I want to just speak first to the Christian. And we don't do this a lot, but I just want to recognize, is there a Christian today? As we read that quote, you realize, man, I have been running from God. I've been wayward. And man, I need to repent. I need to turn and and just experience again afresh the mercies of God. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're tuning in. Would you let us know if you're watching online? Would you, would you message us at Shoreline Calvary Chapel's Facebook page or on our website? You can email us. Please let us know if this is you. But if you're here in the service and that's you, you're a believer who needs in this moment to repent and turn back to the Lord, would you just raise your hand so I know who you are? so I can pray for you. Here this morning, is there anyone that says, that's kind of where I'm at. I've been running from God and he has been so good to me. I wanna wanna turn back and receive his grace and mercy. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. All right, there's hands going up. I'll pray for you today. 
You put your hands down. Now, is there anyone here today, not a believer in Jesus, but today you see your sin, you see the wrath of God poured out against it, that you will stand before him and be judged for your sin. You'll, you'll spend an eternity apart from God in torment in hell. And today can be the day that you receive what Christ has done on your behalf and you're transferred from death to life. Your sins are forgiven and you're welcomed into the beloved because of Christ, not because you raised your hand, because you prayed a prayer, because you did something religious, but because you recognize today, I wanna receive what Christ has done. And I've never publicly acknowledged that. And today I wanna, I wanna do that. I, I wanna know who you are as a pastor. So raise your hand today. If there's anyone here, you've never received Christ as Lord and Savior. I just wanna give you that opportunity. We do this from time to time. We don't want it to be an emotional decision, but we do wanna recognize maybe you're here and this could be that day. Anyone here watching online, you would please let us know and we'll follow up with you. Don't be emotional, but we wanna encourage you to turn in faith. This is for all of us to respond to the gospel. Let me pray for us as a church. Father, we thank you for the mercies of God in the person and work of Christ. Today, we acknowledge that Jesus, you were the man thrown into death. You were fully immersed, you died, and three days later, you rose again victoriously. We thank you, Lord, for bearing our sin, for taking our place, that the wrath that all would receive was poured out upon the Son. Therefore, the guilty one could go free. So today, Lord, we glory in the gospel, we glory in the cross, we thank you that you've made a way of salvation. And Lord, we don't look to any other means, to any other false gods, we look to Jesus Christ and him alone. We thank you this morning. What a great mercy we've been given. This morning, as we sing, we reflect on all that you've done, and with gratitude, we can say to the Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for how you have never let us go. You're at work even today even in the hardship, even in the storm. It's all a God thing, it all belongs to you. All the glory, all the praise, all the gratitude. So to that end, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.